and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm Ann Gordon, here with my friend and Chavruta Yerdena Osband, our daf of the day, Masachet Kutubot, daf Mem Zion, page 47. So, our daf outlines for us, I would say, the contractual relationship between husband and wife in terms of, um, well, we'll see, right? The, it's following on the Mishnah, right, where the Mishnah said specifically that the father is entitled to the daughter's earnings. But then we know that once she gets married, then the husband becomes entitled to her, her earnings. So the citation for the Mishnah is very short, meaning the work of her hands or the doings of her hands, which literally is, you know, it's it's a picturesque way of presenting her earnings. So the Gemara says, you know, how do we know this? Where do we get this from? The Amar of Huna, Amar of Amarav, Minayan Shemasei Abat Laav. Where do we get it that the that the earnings of the daughter will really go, really belong to the father? There's this verse in Shmot 21, right? That if a person, if a man, explicitly if a man, really, if a man sells his daughter to be a servant, meaning, so then right away, right, he's getting the money for the daughter. The same way that the servant's um, earnings or the work of her hands goes to her master, so too the daughter, like in this parallel, the the earnings of the daughter would go to her father. So let's say this lines up with when she's a child, right? Meaning when she's underage, because at that point, he's also responsible for providing for her. Food, right? Literally, right? So then we should argue, we should be able to argue that once she's no longer a minor, right? Then he and if she's a naira, I mean she's past the age of into the age of majority, then she he cannot sell her for for her to become a maidservant. So then presumably her earnings should belong to her because that parallel to the maidservant. The, that the master would get the earnings falls away. So the Gemara says, Mistabra da via havu. So this is, it's still reasonable that her earnings should go to her father. Why? The Isal Kedaitach Masaya de Alav da via Alahai de Zaki lay Rahmanel Av, Lemimstri Lachupa, Hechi Matu Maserle. Because it says, you want, you want it. Her, her, if you want to say that her earnings do not go to her father, then what about the fact that he's the one who's going to bring her to the wedding canopy, right? To the chuppah, meaning he's still out there caring for her, looking out for her, providing for her. So then she, then he, her earnings should still go to him. So the man says, well, how, how is it that he does this and he's going to bring her to the chuppah? Ha! Meaning, once he does that, isn't he, doesn't he, in that way, make sure that she's going to, like, ignore the fact that she's got, that she's earning anything by the work of her hands, right? Because she's getting married. If she's getting married, she can't be having Masayada to begin with, in which case, right, in which case, maybe he wouldn't be bringing her to the chuppah because he wants to get the Masayada. Or alternatively, if she has the rights to her own earnings, then she can say, you know, I, uh, you know, what are you doing? Bring me to the chuppah. I'm earning. It's a, it's a, it, the logic here is a little bit tricky, I think. Um, 
really the Gemara is working hard to justify the fact that the father takes possessions of the daughter's earnings. I would say that later, and we haven't come to the point at all yet, where it's going to eventually go to the husband, as difficult as that sounds to modern ears, the equation that is set up there is a little bit easier. Um, I'm not sure exactly where that kicks in. So Rav Achai, you know, comes to, to refute this. So let's say he brings her to the chuppah and then he gives her the wages, right? Her earnings that she um, would not have been getting because she's taking a break from working because she's getting married, right? And then you can't, then she can't complain that she wasn't making the money that she would have been making, making otherwise. Inami, alternatively, the Masala Balilia, or perhaps he, you know, brought her to the chuppah at night. So that same day, she was already working, right? Meaning she was doing all her work during the daytime and she wasn't, she didn't have to lose any wages because the wedding was at night, right? Because there's no preparation time. Inami, or alternatively, the masala b'shabatot or maybe the chuppah was on Shabbat or on Chag when it's prohibited to work. So she's certainly not losing any wages because she the chuppah is specifically at a time when it would have been impossible for her to be earning wages anyway. So the Gemara goes back, like the Gemara kind of entertains all of these different possibilities and then goes back to the original position. Ella, Katana, Lotricha, Kra. The Gemara says, for the case of the minor, you don't even need the whole parallel to the maidservant, right? Because it's just obvious that the father of a child is entitled to her earnings. Katana, Lotricha, Kra. Meaning once he's providing for her, then it makes good sense that she's going to be contributing to the household, meaning giving the money to him. The whole reason that we have that limud, where I said the Gemara is working hard to show us that there's a parallel here, um, that is for the case of Anara, meaning the young woman who is in fact who has in fact reached the age of majority, and you would think she might well be entitled to the earnings of her own hands herself. The verse teaches that lo and behold, those earnings go to the father. Um, okay, I'm going to pause here. I just want to mention quickly, the next section of the Gemara talks about Haferat Nedarea, which is the Mishnah's um, uh, statement that the father can bring about a nullification of a daughter's vows or oaths. And the way that that's even like, you know, also it requires a limud. It also requires some work to see how is it that the father is able to do this. And later, eventually, we'll see that a husband can also do this, depending. But the terms of another person nullifying one's vows are very, very specific. And that's really all I wanted to mention about that. Meaning the Gemara goes into it in, in some, you know, it, it acknowledges that there's some work here to be done. Um, and I just want to say, like, it's not... For all that it's kind of an uncomfortable equation, we understand that she's living under her father's house and her earnings are going to him. It's not the same thing as if she took an oath. How can another person, how can the man in her life come and undo the workings of an oath that she takes? And the answer is, it really depends. Meaning, yes, there is a certain amount of leeway that they that either the father or the husband could undo it, but only under very specific circumstances. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think it does make sense that it's a little bit different. You know, one is like an income that really comes in. And we'll get to Nadara when we get to it. I mean, it's conceptually like very, very different. Like why it is that somebody is allowed to, you know, nullify that vow. And I think that has to do more with what, how does a woman function within a household, whether it's her father's household or her husband's household. Yeah, I think that's accurate. All right, but I'm going to move on now to something on Ahmed Bet. Uh, right? So the Mishnah teaches us that a husband must provide his wife with, you know, an English translation would be sus- sustenance or, uh, you know, food. But it's basically they have said he has to provide for her. And in that list as well was also that he needed to provide for, he had to redeem her if she were to be captured and also to provide her with a proper funeral. Tanu Rabbanam, we have a bracelet that says, Tiknu Mizanotaha Tachat Maseyadaha. And so the Chachamim make an interesting comment here on a brisa, which is sort of a like, uh, you know, in exchange for this, this obligation happens, right? So that a husband has to provide for his wife with her mizonot because he has rights to her earnings, which sort of makes sense. If she's going to add something to the marriage where he sort of gets some of her property or her money, then he also has to provide for her as well. And the same thing is, is that he needs to, you know, tend to her burial, right? Because he inherits any dowry that she brings into the marriage. Uh, and that was, you know, in her in her ketubah. So then he also owes her a proper burial. Um, and therefore, uh, because of all this, uh, uh, the husband can eat the produce of her property. So the Gemara basically says, right? But payroll, like produce, who was talking about that? In other words, the 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 Brisa, right, didn't mention anything about produce before before. So how did it get to this conclusion? Right? Like the first half of the Brisa makes sense. This nice line above saying, But what's this Where does that come from? Right? So it does one of these tricks that the Gemara does where it says the Brisa, the Tanaitic statement, right? Sometimes with Mishnah, sometimes with Brisa's, is actually missing some words. Katani, and this is what it really wanted to teach. So it was missing a whole phrase there, right? Which is that he has to provide her redemption in exchange for the produce of her property. So now this list and Brisa makes more sense because it's the list of three that we saw before in the Mishnah, now in a brace of form, right? So in exchange for all of this, this is why he is allowed to eat her, the produce of, uh, of her property. My So the Gemara, you know, as explained, you know, basically that, you know, the Tana came to talk about produce, but what, what exactly is this word like, what's the significance of this last statement? Right. You might've thought to say, Right, you might say that the husband should not consume the produce, but leave it because this way, if like, uh, it, it, you know, it, this way he has it if he needs it. In other words, it's sort of the thing. Right, because if he uh, if he doesn't have that money necessarily, like if he doesn't have the fund, the, those funds from her produce. Maybe 
he won't actually redeem her. It teaches us otherwise, right? That really this arrangement is better. Right? Because sometimes the produce won't amount to the funds that would actually be necessary. Because in other words, if you say that produce is there specifically for that, right? It, it may not equal the amount that he would need to actually redeem her and therefore he wouldn't redeem her. So therefore what they say is he gets the produce right away, but he has to redeem her from his own funds if she was taken into, uh, you know, if she was taken into captivity, right? Um, but then it says, the Gemara basically says, right, I can reverse these connections. Like why does the Bryce say that it's the husband's obligation to provide his, you know, to provide his wife Mizo note um, in exchange, you know, in exchange for his right to her earnings. Why don't we say it's it's the other way around, right? That it's his right to consume this. Like it's it's what why is it formulated in this way? So Bai said they basically wrote it in this way as a common obligation in exchange for like a common right. And then they did an uncommon obligation in exchange for an uncommon right. In other words, they they wrote this thing, the Chacham wrote this halacha about the husband's obligation to provide his wife with Mizno note, right? Which would basically happen always on a regular basis, right? In exchange for her earnings. Again, this is something that always applies regularly. The other obligations and rights, right? Which they also do the same formulation with are not as frequent, but that's why they sort of did it this way. In other words, it's the frequent one with the frequent one and the less frequent one with the less frequent one. Because what they're saying with is, why do I connect each one with that? Like maybe I should say, because he gets her earnings, he has to provide her burial. Or, you know, because of the ketubah that he inherits the dowry, he needs to get this. So it's lining up sort of, I think the Gemara is sort of explaining something that is a little bit obvious, but I think it's trying to make it clear that they're linking they're linking common things with common things and uncommon things with uncommon things. But it, it's interesting to sort of see this, like it's an economic, like tit for tat, like you get this and then he gets that. And I think it's also interesting to see that I, I, at least with the formulation of the Mishnah and the Brisa is, this is all the burden on the husband. It's not what the wife owes him. It's like, what do you get? Uh, because yes, economically, you have to provide for your wife but she's bringing something in and it's recognizing that she is bringing something in and therefore that obligates the husband even more. And I think that formulation also, it's like an important shift in the dynamic. Like it's not about the wife being under the husband. It's really recognizing that a woman comes to the marriage with a certain set of monetary values that has to be respected and that obligates the husband. It's like really a reminder in this mission embrace it to be like, she's not coming with nothing and you owe her because of that. Like I, I, I read it in a way, it's like really a reminder of like, uh, you know, sort of the respect that's due to the woman. So I think this is why I phrase it as we're going to see this contractual dynamic between them, right? Like they each need to contribute. It sounds not fair, you know, if you look at any one component part, but the whole picture of it, I think, is, is I don't know if it's fair, but it's there's a like a, there's this contractual relationship, right? Meaning she does this and she gets this or he does this and he gets that. Like it, I think it lines up. 
Yeah, I, I agree. And I think it's also like, again, this is not a romantic way of describing marriage. No. But I think the more we go through this myself, and we see that a lot of this was very much an economic arrangement. But I, I look at it differently. I don't think it's that the Gemara or the Tanaim or the Amaraim didn't believe in love or some of those aspects of marriage. I think a lot of this is to really just make sure that women were protected um, in a way that probably was very ahead of its time when these halachot were written. I think that's part of it. I think the other part of it is that it's very carefully defined, right? Everybody knows that, you know, the couple gets married and her earnings are going to go to him and he is going to provide for her. Meaning it's it, it, the math of it doesn't have to be accurate, right? Meaning she could technically say, well, I brought in these earnings and that's how we bought the food. So really I'm the one doing the both, right? But that's not, it, the lines are very clear. And then I think that, I don't think it's romantic at all in the in the presentation of it. But I think that there's an ease that when, when those lines, I, listen, it doesn't work in our society at all, maybe in certain aspects of Haredi society it does, or for a given individual couple, I mean, a particular couple. But the the idea that everything is so carefully defined, everybody has their role to play. Nobody's like arguing. She doesn't get to say, oh, but I want to keep my stuff because it's already part of the game. I don't mean game. Yeah, I, I no, no. I, I know you don't mean game, but I like, this is also typical halacha it gets into the practical. Like the Gemara doesn't in a way lay out for us the philosophy or the meta piece of it. It does it through a halakhic discussion. And then, then I think it's sort of up to the learner to figure out like what's really the underpinning here? What's really the value here? So the value, so they're going to get into the weeds of like, can, what's a contractual marriage? What does everybody owe, owe each other? And then I think it's up, up, us to up as we learn, up, up to us as we learn this, can't get that out, to really take a step back and say, like, what's the value that this halakha is actually, actually teaching us? Right. And I think that sometimes when things are very clearly defined, then there's a lot more room to, to make it personal because they can, the couple can maneuver within these definitions instead of having to first figure out, you know, Who's doing what? How do they fit? You know, uh, who owns? Does she own her earnings? How, you know, whatever. I, it sounds. It sounds again. It's a really difficult sentence in this day and age because I. I don't know. In this day and age, I feel like people. Um, most people that I know, both parties in a couple work, and everybody's contributing to the household. And these lines are not so clearly defined. But I feel like there's something to be said, or or even if there isn't something to be said nowadays, the fact that it was defined like that meant that then, like they they just kind of moved on from there because they were in it together, and that I think does open up room for love and romance and and the development of a relationship. Well, that's our DAP discussion for the day. Rank us, review us on all major podcasts. Thank you to Reverend Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. Let us know what you thought about this stuff on our Talking Talmud Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn.